House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Michael Hawley just got back from watching the Grammys. How you doing, Al? <laughs> I'm doing good. So, uh, did you did you hang out at the Grammys or anything like that? Or uh, no, I did not. Uh, but like uh, we in Buffalo here, we experienced a little a little earthquake this morning. Oh, yeah, it was like a three point eight. So you know, it's not like the seven point eight that Turkey felt, but nothing happens. But it did kind of like shake people up, and so I got to uh, have a lesson today in my classes with uh, earthquakes. <laughs> going to say you've been eating too much and maybe you fell down and you shook the whole buffalo area yeah my back is out too so i've got the chiropractor appointed for saturday <laughs> and i'm not kidding <laughs> boy it's tough when you get in that age you know don't break your hip that's you know you know you know <laughs> the end when that happens that's right <laughs> oh it's crazy um but no damage with your earthquake no 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 just the turkey little... i guess turkey got quite a Smack one got seven crushed. seven or something uh, seven yeah seven but some of the after uh, shocks were that like seven point five so that's just intense. Wow, it's going to be a lot of damage then. Oh yeah, for sure. Because that's a big one. Wow. Well, speaking of damage, <laughs> we've got a writer here who's written uh, a book called Death of a Dancing Queen. So uh, let's welcome the author Kimberly. G. Geritano, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted. Nice meeting you, Kim. Thank you. We'll see how delighted you are at the end of the uh -oh. show. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, stop. <laughs> this will be fun. Yeah. Yes. So what, what's going on? So you, you um, are writing a book called Death of a Dancing Queen. So this is some sort of a uh, murder crime fiction sort of novel. What got you into doing that? Um, yes, it is. It's a PI mystery because I love, um, I like private eye. I like hard boiled fiction a lot. Um, I was writing, this is, I think my sixth book. Don't quote me on that, but I've been writing young adult. I was a young adult librarian for many years. And then I was writing young adult literature. And, um, this is my first foray into adult fiction because I wanted to write a private eye novel and I couldn't envision it with a teen protagonist. I was like, no, 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 this girl's young, but she's not that young. And, um, so I am a huge fan of Veronica Mars and the show ended and I was sort of bereft. I'm like, I could write fan fiction or I could just write my own PI novel. And so that's what I did. And it's set in North Jersey. I'm from New Jersey originally. I'm from Monmouth County, which is central Jersey. It's very, it's a, it's, it's a real region. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, uh, but I felt like Nor uh, Bergen County, North Jersey, which is like, it's, you know, saddles up to Manhattan and it really felt like the right uh, setting for hard-boiled noir, um, my take on it anyway. So if you love Veronica Mars, this is, this is your book. This is like an East Coast Jewish Veronica Mars. <laughs> there you have it. Yeah. What do you consider the difference between young adult and old adult? Like, what, what, what's going on with this? Um, help, help the old man here. Sure. So young adult literature's it's aimed at an audience of, of, of adolescents and, you know, there is definitely delineations even with beyond that. There's like young, young adult, young, young adult, we might say like lower YA, upper YA, you know, it depends because adolescence goes through, you know, 
for most of us, there's no real big difference between 40 and 50 years old, right? But between like 10 and 20, there is a huge difference. And literature really should reflect that. So when I was a young adult librarian, you know, my job was to do programming for teens, to curate our collection for teens. And, you know, um, teens always read up as well. So if you're 12 years old, you're more interested in reading a book that features a 14-year-old protagonist. If you're 14, you want to read a book that probably features a 16 or 17-year-old protagonist. And young adult literature really focuses on, you know, adolescence and what it's like to be an adolescent. It's It's going to fall mostly on, you know, teens are that centerpiece of it, you know, and, and their feelings and what they're going through, you know, and that's going to have to do with friendships and, and, and first romance and conflicts with parents and conflicts with other kids. When we're writing for adults, even a 24-year-old, as my protagonist, Billy, is 24 years old, when she is dealing with relationships, this is not her first time dealing with romance. It's not going to be her first time dealing with conflict. For Billy, uh, you know, the difference is she has to parent a parent because her mother has early onset Alzheimer's disease. She's also trying to figure out how she's going to work and pay the bills while caring for somebody as well. She has to navigate, obviously she's tracking down a criminal, so she has to navigate her work life with her family life. It's, it's a very different cry from, say, when I've written about teenagers who are, you know, in, let's take... School Lies is my most recent book, my most recent um, young adult book before Death of a Dancing Queen, where I have two teenage protagonists, one who's having to navigate the disappearance of a sister while his parents are going through a divorce, having to deal with his feelings on his sexuality and, you know, his interest in uh, another character. And then that other character is having to deal with the death of a father and having to live under the roof with his mother and still having to go to school and having to navigate all of that. So it's just it's just not another life stage. I was going to say, wouldn't it be difficult to write? Because you say hard-boiled noir, so it's usually pretty, um, a little bit more graphic, a little bit darker, heavier, more scenic, we'll say. So wouldn't it be hard to kind of write a young adult-centered hard-boiled noir? I would say not. <laughs> I mean, I it could be done. The, the, the great thing about young adult literature right now is that, especially in crime fiction, it's really having a moment. There is some dark stuff coming out in YA. Um, Tiffany Jackson comes to mind. Um, her book allegedly is, is quite dark and incredibly um, evocative and really awesome. Um, uh, Karen McManus, she um, she's also writing. Uh, she's, in my opinion, like the, the queen of, of, of young adult crime fiction and her stuff also, you know, she, they don't shy away. Um, Mindy McGinnis is another one. I just reviewed one of her books and she tackles um, murder and disappearance and teenagers. And I guess times are changing. Yeah. I, it's just that you, you, you don't want nothing ever really bad to happen to someone that's a teenager in your book or story. Usually it doesn't, it doesn't fare as well, does it? Do, do people actually buy that sort of thing, you know? Or? Teenagers do. Teenagers, definitely. <laughs> I mean, the audience, you know, you yeah. remember, when you're ready for, for teens, that's your audience. You know, right. adults will absolutely read YA. I read a ton of YA. But that's not who you're writing for when you're writing for teenagers. But um, this idea that you can't have bad things happen to teenagers in books is, is definitely not what is coming out in literature today. Um, oh, I just reviewed another book, and I'm blanking on it. But... Yeah, a teen, you know, there's murder. 
Yeah. Oh, good. I'll I'll write some savage murder for kids. You know. You know what? Young adult literature is incredibly progressive, and it's way more progressive than it. You know, they will tackle themes and topics, and be way more inclusive. And it takes a little bit of a while for adult literature to catch up, in my opinion, particularly with crime fiction, for sure. You know, uh, that's exactly what I experienced because I teach high schoolers, mm-hmm. and uh, it is one thing is they are much more progressive than. You know, when I go out in my family and uh, see less, less, uh, a more conservative look to things, but uh, but also, it's a really tumultuous time, the teenage world. And then, you know, we even have to deal with suicides and and uh, the vaping is killing them right now. But there is a lot of there's a lot of tough things going on. I could see how they would be attracted to this kind of thing. I will say, nothing is off limits in young adults. Uh, like you know i think adults adult authors in particular especially if you haven't written a ya or read it will think certain topics are are off limits and it's not um you know sex is disgusting murder and you know crime fiction like i said is, is having definitely this golden moment in young adult literature but it's how you handle the topics that that's really different how are we handling it when we're writing for a teen audience is the difference between writing for a teen audience and then writing adult fiction yeah i guess it's like uh like an uh stephen king carry or something more extreme well i mean stephen king's horror (laughs) um (laughs) well that's pretty extreme Yes, it gets think, it gets that I mean, way, but in a in a sense, like a lot of that sort of stuff was, it, you know, we call it horror back in the seventies, but really today, is it? It's it's really more family dynamics and weird things going on, and a little bit of fantasy and stuff. I don't know if it's no, that's a good point. Yeah, but I wouldn't call that that's not a young adult novel. And Stephen King, I would think. I mean, that it was not written for a teen audience. It well, has we a sure protagonist. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> actually, that's a well. T- you know, teens read up too. Like when I I grew up in the '90s, right? I was a teenager in the '90s. There was not really young adult literature for me. I think I read Christopher Pike, and then I read like you know John. Like I I know I read Michael Crichton and John Grisham. Like I read whatever my mom was reading because there really wasn't like John Green. He's my age. He didn't exist. <laughs> I mean, he did, but. He wasn't writing, obviously, because his career didn't start then. But there really wasn't nothing. There wasn't anything for me in the 90s. Right. And I, you know, my son right now is in seventh grade. He's reading The Outsiders. And I'm like, that's probably one of the first young adult literature books, you know, because he actually enjoys it. It's one of the few books he likes. But I'm like, yeah, that was probably one of the first YA novels to really come on the scene because there just wasn't, it wasn't available. Well, but with you, with young adult now, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that sort of, so you're following someone that's, let's say, a teen or a couple of teens or some younger people, and you're kind of going through their experiences. And with that age, it's usually their firsts rather than adults, right? So, mm-hmm. so in a sense, you're, you're right. how do you, how do you yourself um, write from that point of view? And I say that not because, I mean, obviously you were that age at one time, but um, each generation has their own thing, you know. It's different. So how do you how do you mm-hmm. let's say tap into today's young generation when you write something like that? That's a really good question. And the funny thing is, I've written two of my young adult novels are set in the nineties. Oh, okay. <laughs> so well, that. In, I, and I, I have written others that are set in present day. But a lot of the a lot of the emotions you feel as a teenager kind of don't change. Sure, technology is different. 
Um, but like my teen characters still have to deal with overbearing parents, which I remember very distinctly and classmates that are unkind, which I also remember very distinctly and trying to navigate very awkward and uncomfortable situations. But also it's, so much about young adult literature is identity. Like, who are we? Who are we trying to become? How do we become those people in the face of, you know, constant conflict? You know, everything feels so heightened when you're a teenager. And I have a teenager now. Like, everything is just, there's mood swings. Your hormones are going crazy. So, like, you always feel like you're insane half the time. And a lot of it is tapping into my memories of just emotions and feelings. Obviously, if I'm writing a book set in present day, like, I'm not including... Tupac is not coming up. He did in one of my novels because it was the 90s, but now it's not. So I do have to be, like, really conscientious of the time period. And there are things that I, you know, I do have to, like, check into, like, social media sites that I'm not always on and things like that. But, you know, in many of my novels, my young adult novels in particular, I'm dealing with crime and, you know, there is a purpose to what's going on. So there is, like, you know, a bit of focus. But parents that feel overbearing, you know, when I'm writing from a teen perspective, parents are the ones that are wrong, even if they yeah. might be right. Like I might look at yeah. that parent and be like, well, you should listen to her. Mom knows what she's talking about. No, not to a teenager. Mom does not understand. And I have to make sure that that is how it comes across. You know, that feeling of you do not get it. That would be the difference. You know, there are plenty of novels that have teen protagonists that are not YA. Um, the Lovely Bones is a good example, you know, uh, where there is a teen protagonist. And it's not what I would classify as a young adult novel. I read a novel, a crime fiction novel the other day where half of the POV was from a teenager. It would not be a young adult novel. You know, it just, it doesn't have, um, you know, the teen protagonist is going through some things, but I would never, it would not be classified. You would also be writing from the first point of view, right? Like if you're writing a, a, a young adult, you're writing from their point of view. They're, they're the voice you hear. Sure. I mean, I write in third person POV, but yes, you're absolutely right. You know, it's not always first person POV. I think I've only done first person POV for my first novel and then a novella that followed up. I, I like writing in third person, so I do it more often. Is there an advantage, an advantage to writing third person I, for you? I like, think I sound better. <laughs> like, I think I write better in third person. I'm like, oh, that sounded so smart. I don't know. It's just, it's more of a comfort zone. Um, I mean, third person limited and first-person POV. There's not really a huge difference. I just think I write better in third-person. So when you said there, you kind of felt like a purpose, was there, so do you have like a subtext? Is there a meaning behind your books other than the entertainment and all the challenges and stuff? Is there an underlying current there that you hope readers pick up? Or Oh, always. Madonna said this once in an interview. She said, I didn't become a singer because I thought I had a great voice. I became a singer because I had something to say. And I always say that about my writing. I always have something to say. There is something I want to, to, to discuss. So, like, in Death of a Dancing Queen, I wanted to talk. I mean, I wanted to have fun. I kind of wanted to bring back Jewish mobsters, which I did. I wanted to set, like, a hard-boiled novel in North Jersey, which I think is the perfect setting for it. So I did. But I also wanted to talk about relationships, mothers and daughters particularly, um, talking about um, Alzheimer's disease uh, because somebody I love has dementia and I wanted to kind of explore a relationship where a child is having to care for a parent for the most part. Because even if you're 24 years old, you're somebody's child and having to parent a parent. And what does that mean? And I wanted to, you know, uh, 
explore family dynamics. And I thought, what better way to do it than from the perspective of a 24-year-old who's trying to make their way in the world? And who also, at 24 years old, has to put some dreams on the back burner. You know, when you're 24, you know, the world should be your oyster, should it not? Like, and it isn't. It's not for Billy. She can't just do what she wants. Like, when she was in college, she thought, you know, she could graduate and maybe move to Europe, you know, and travel. And she can't do any of those things because she has a parent at home that needs her and she's not going to give up on her. And there's also a large genetic component that I wanted to talk about because Billy's mom has early onset Alzheimer's disease. That is a, has a huge genetic component that could strike Billy as well. And so there is this fear that she has of ending up like her mom, you know, of being a young person, you know, who can't, who can't you know, who doesn't have her memories. And Billy's like, if you don't have your memories, what do you have? So, you know, Billy is, is sort of, she's frightened with her, by her future, but she's confronted by it every time she looks at her mother. And I really, really wanted to explore that as well. So I wanted to have fun, but I also wanted to tackle some serious stuff too. And then marrying the two, you know, for everything that depressed me, you know, I wrote something funny in the manuscript. It's not a downer. I want that to be so clear to people who are listening to this. I'm like, this is not a downer. You're going to read it and you're going to think, but you're also going to laugh and you're going to love these people. You will love them, I promise. Well, Mike's already slid his wrist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was. Hang in there, buddy. I was just curious. I was more curious about that New Jersey deli. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, with the free Wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Somebody was like, is that wish fulfillment? Is there a deli that exists like that? And I was like, listen, any New Jersey deli, a good deli, Jewish deli, is going to give you some decent half hours with your order. They just are. Um, I was at Sarge's Deli in Manhattan several years ago, and their coleslaw was so good. <laughs> I was like, how do you make this? And they're like, we're not telling you. <laughs> I mean, when I was reading that, I said, oh, that's what the first thing that came to mind is about those delis right there. So, yeah, in my house, I'm constantly having conversations with my kids about decent pickles. <laughs> like, <laughs> and my son, they went food shopping yesterday. He's like, they don't have half sours. You can't get, I'm like, they do, but it's in like refrigerated section. It's like in the deli. Like you can't, he's like, they, you know, he wanted half sours because that's all I want to eat is half sour pickles. <laughs> so then Billy's ex-boyfriend is this like a, uh, are they like a reflame? Is it going to happen again? Or how does that work? I love second chance romance. It's a big trope in it's a big trope in, in um, romance novels, but I, I definitely have it here. Yeah, I mean, I also there's something to be said about first loves that you can't shake. I really like that too. Yeah, he's her first love, you know, that she couldn't shake, and he does come back, and um, you know, it, he also complicates everything because he's the son of a mobster she's investigating. So oh, that would do it, and he's yeah. got his own rap sheet too, huh? Yes. Of course, yes, because it, it wouldn't be fun if he didn't. You know what? <laughs> Hughes used to, used to be, like, really good mobsters. Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky. And I just, one of these days I'll write a historical. I have a little fun tidbit, though. It is rumored in my family that Bugsy Siegel hit on my great-grandmother. And my great-grandpa, because they were all from the same neighborhood, the Lower East Side, right? Oh, okay. And my, my great-grandpa was like, hey, Bugsy. And he's like, oh, because my, my great-grandfather's name was Abraham, but they called him Pete. I don't know why. I never figured that out. But they're like, oh, Petey. I didn't know she was your girl. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that cool. But anyway, <laughs> I love, I really kind of wanted to harken back to it. And I was like, you know what? I could make the 
mobsters Italian. But then I was like, I feel like that's a, you know, it is a stereotype. I, and I didn't want to lean too much into it. I was like, why can't they be Jewish? Why can't any of my bad guys Jewish? That would be fun as well. So I yeah, think. my mother's maiden name is Siegel. So I'm, I, I have a thing for Bugsy. And <laughs> yeah, he was awful. He was like, like we romanticized him because Warren Beatty played him, but he was the worst. Like he was really awful. But I'm still fascinated by um, Jewish history, particularly um, like the rise of, of organized crime. I just find that so fascinating. So right. I'm, I worked it into my modern day storytelling. Oh, that's good. Do you feel like you have to be careful when you get into the into Jewish and gangsters and stuff like that with today's kind of um, world? I guess I don't because I am Jewish. Like <laughs> I'm in my lane, so to speak. I, I guess I don't in that particular, I mean, it's, it's fiction and, you know, we're, it's tough because we're out, like, it's a diaspora, right? Right. And my Jewish right. experience are so different from, let's say my cousins who live in El Paso, their Jewish experiences are very different um, from mine. And as a diaspora, our experience, like I have a very Ashkenazi you know, New York City, Lower East Side ancestry, you know, we came from, like, the Pale of Settlement, like, and my Jewish experience is, is, you know, is unique to, well, to a large group of people from New Jersey. I mean, growing up where I did, I grew up with a lot of, a lot of Jewish kids just like me in, in many respects. So, you know, do I expect somebody's going to read this and be like, you know, that's not how I relate to Judaism? Sure, because we're a diaspora and our experiences are so different. I can only write from my own perspective. And and could I, yeah, I don't really worry about, a, I don't really worry, I guess, about offending anybody because well, I, yeah. I could, I could easily offend somebody who is also an Ashkenazi Jew from New Jersey and be like, I found this offensive. And I totally, I would never discount that, but I'm not going to worry about it as I write. I guess I would say that. You know, yeah, yeah. And I'd like to think, like, my friends read it who's Jewish. Like, I, my agent's Jewish. She's read it. Like, I'd like to think I've hit up enough of my, like, my friend, one of my other friends, she read an early copy. And the only thing I could ask her was, like, did the Jewish jokes land? Did you get, did you think they were funny? She's like, oh, yeah, they did. <laughs> like, that was my only concern. Did my humor land? Yeah. <laughs> well, humor's tough, right? Humor, you got to be careful. Especially when you're writing a crime. I mean, you have to be careful on where it is to make it work. Sure. I mean, I would never, I would never tell a joke. Like, I would be very careful about, uh, I would, I would, I would never pen a joke at a different group's expense. Do you know what I mean? Right. But these are like, you know, um, I would never do that. But I feel like my group's fair game, I guess, is what, you know, like, I should be able to poke fun at, at, at you know, you know, and I, I should be able to poke fun at ourselves. Like, I, yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think we're self-deprecating by, you know, by nature um, as a group, too, so. You know, I had, uh, you know, my fiction, one of my fiction novels is Victorian times during the Jack the Ripper time. So what I wanted to do was just like you did. I wanted to have a hook every page and have some kind of humor. So one of the Scotland Yard detectives was known for his humor. So I went into old, you know, 19th century Victorian jokes, and they were all against Irish. They were all just jokes that you would never say. So I really couldn't use many of them. <laughs> that would have been really, really bad. Oh my God! Yeah. Well, it's tough because you know we. 
we, I mean, we need to be respectful, you know, we want to be respectful and we want to be, um, careful. We do. I mean, you know, and we'll hear comedians nowadays be like, you know, I won't tell that joke anymore. I'm, I can't even think of one off the top of my head. Don Rickles, he was a killer. <laughs> Seth Rogen, Seth Rogen made a comment like, there are some jokes that we just don't need to tell. We don't need to fight for them. They're not worth, you know, they just, you know. Yeah. Cultural shifts change. That's part of life. Um, and we need to be mindful of that as well. But that doesn't mean that we can't have, you know, that we can't explore our culture, especially our culture. You know what I mean? Like the one that I'm writing from, the POV that I'm writing from. I would not be sitting there, you know, I, I can't explore another group. I can explore mine and I can have fun with mine. And sometimes a lot of the things that I talk about happen to me or said to me. And I do want to write about them because I want to point out the ridiculousness, right. you know, uh, of some of the things that I have been, you know, that, that have been said to me. I want to, you know, point out like, this is the world, like, see how crazy that is? So, yeah, you know. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I mean, I go through it all. The, I, I understand totally. And I get it, but I've I've made a career out of being um, putting myself down and everything else. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because I love I, it, because we take ourselves too seriously. It doesn't matter, you know, how popular you are. But at the end of the day, it's just it's overdone, you know. So I just I just don't do that. I make fun of everything. Yeah, yeah. He teases me about my goatee all the time, you know, but. Uh... <laughs> I love, I love, I love self-deprecating. Well, <laughs> my friend, yeah. she's like, you're very self-deprecating at times. And I was like, cause it's easy. I, I don't mind taking shots at myself. Like it's, you know, I'm fair game. Yeah. Cause people, you know, I, I, I get that sense of humor. I think it's, um, it's very approachable. People generally like it. Um, but, you know, there's always room for complaints, but, uh, lately that's been Michael. <laughs> I mean, the book isn't out yet. The book comes out on the 14th. So, uh, I'll, you know. <laughs> I'll get people on. Hey. Who knows? Who knows what emails I'll get? Do you, do you actually <laughs> um, interact a lot? Do you? Or do you? How should I say this? Do you do a lot with your, let's say, reviews and stuff? So when you put a book out and you know Goodreads and Amazon and all that sort of stuff, are are you paying attention to people that give you good or bad and all that sort? Of, do you follow through or do you just sort of ignore it? I read my reviews. I just told, I just had a conversation with an author friend of mine and she was like, you read your reviews? And I was like, yes, because I want to know if people are reading my book. So Death of a Dancing Queen is my first traditionally published novel, I would say. Um, all my other stuff, you know, has been indie. Um, my first book that came out, came out from a small press, but I got my rights back. They were great. It's just, they, they didn't really know how to market YA and that's fine. Totally fine. But anyway, um, I have not gotten a lot, like, so I read my reviews just to make sure, like, are people reading this? Do they like it? There may come a point where I'd just be like, you know what, I am better off not knowing. I don't want to be tagged in any negative reviews. Like, don't, you know, um, I always say, like, if you like the book, tell me. And if you don't, like, just, you know, don't tell me. I always but tell them, just if, if you like it, review and let me know. Everyone. And if you don't, <laughs> put it in the bathroom. Yeah, like, I just... I would never pan because as an author and we know how hard it is to write and to produce and create art. We know how difficult it is. So I would never ever pan a book like online. I just, if I don't like it, I don't say anything, but that's because I know 
how difficult it is. But, you know, and I, I, I also know that reviews are not for writers. They're for readers, you know. But I do read my reviews. So if you write a bad review, I'll read it. I'll find it. I stalk my reviews <laughs> online yeah. constantly. I Google it all the time. If it was a person, it would have a restraining order against me because I just want to see, are people mentioning it? Is it resonating? Um, I have yeah. them down and kill them. <laughs> I would never. Well, and you're thinking he's I, I, kidding, Kim. <laughs> yeah. there, there's a book. Well, there's several. I write right several there. books from people I've killed that have given me bad reviews. I would. I think. I think you need to write a book about an author who kills. Yeah, it's like oh. you, you said. What? Um, no, I think nowadays I don't. Nowadays I kind of stand back and I, if I flip on Amazon, I'll see it says 400 reviews, and you're at a four star overall. That's good enough. I don't need to go into detail. I hope to get to that point. I hope to have so many reviews that I um, can ignore them. That would be really nice. Well, it's not even about so many because even on ones I've only got 40 or 50, I still don't because to me it's just the overall. You know, if 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 you've got 50 reviews and overall you've got a four and a half star, that means the majority of the people are liking it. I don't need to go find that one star that said that, you know, I couldn't write because it just depresses me, right? No, you're right. I'm going to start doing that. You're right. I'm just going to check the overall star rating and yeah, then same as Goodreads. You know, you look at overall and it's like, well, okay, nine eighty, you got four and a bit. Okay, good enough. Because I think you're right. You know, because really, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled to be even considered a four star. So if I've got that with that many reviews, I'm, oh, I must be doing okay. I'm doing okay whatever I'm doing, so I don't need to have someone, uh, you know, say, well, you know, he couldn't write like a 10th grader could write better than this, right? If someone says that, then it makes me feel bad, then I worry about, you know what I mean? It sort of, yeah, it throws me off my game, so it's better that I don't, I think. At this point, no, you're right. I should yeah. be doing that too. I have been because you'll know how much you say for yourself from, you know, the publisher and all that stuff. Eventually, it, you'll find out. You'll be got. They'll be like, well, you know, we'll never do another yeah. book, or yeah, let's do another one. You, you kind of get back to knowing if it's worthwhile or not. No, that's a very valid thing. I I, I feel like in many ways, even though this is like my sixth book, uh, I feel like I'm still a newbie. I guess that doesn't change. Ways. Yeah, I've got so 29 I'm like, books published now, and and four different publishers. And I'll tell you what, I'm still as insecure as, as you name it, as almost the first book. I know, isn't that weird? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like my husband, you know, he's been in his job for 20 years. He's the most arrogant at it because he knows everything. And I'm like, oh, I hope people like my writing. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> you know, and I used to, I used to realize the same thing and say the same thing. And then you realize um, when you're in the art sort of world and you're creating something people pay for, it's different because only do do we say about singers uh, or about movie stars and even writers. There has been. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, Madonna's. Oh, what's that old has been? You know, it, it's only people in the performing industry and the writing and all the stuff like that that we do that they'll turn around. You could have 40 years' experience in the business instead of the respect you'd get, let's say, in your husband's job because of his experience and doing it and confidence in doing it so long. It's 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 the other way around. It's like, oh, what's that? you know old person doing you know it's some sort of negative comment you don't get that in a regular job that is a really good point right I, you know, and art and the other thing about art in general is just we're compelled to create 
And when we think about, you know, fine arts and dance and, you know, music and particularly writing and stuff, it's like, you know, we do this hoping it will see the light of day. You know, you know, artists paint hoping they can sell a painting. We write hoping we can sell a book. Um, And we do it probably just we we can't help ourselves. Like, that's what art is. It's just you need to create regardless of the outcome. Yeah. And and we're lucky to have that. But, you know, if you're doing this for 30 years, they're not going to treat you the same way as they treat your husband's been doing his job for 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. There seems to be a bit of ageism for sure in arts. It's particularly, I mean, when you look at, when you look at Hollywood too, right? Actors over a certain age don't get roles. (laughs) That's the worst thing. I mean, it doesn't matter who it is. I mean, even like the Grammys, I made fun at the beginning, but you think about it, the old stars like Madonna makes an appearance and you go through social media and half of them are like, Oh, she looks good for a 27 year old hundred vampire, you know, or something, you know, people love to do that. They would never do that in a regular job to someone that's, let's say you're, you're at a Christmas party or some sort of thing. And someone that's been there 30 years and done their job really well. And people know them. They would never make fun like that. It would, it's just, it's just a different atmosphere when you come to art. So I think that keeps us insecure to be honest, you know, I think it's a very valid point, you know, And if we do have a, an ego or an image, most of that, I think, is put on. Sometimes it's real, but I think people put on an image to kind of protect themselves from. 100%. I, 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 writing, I am the most proud of it. Of, of everything I've accomplished in my life, my books are my crowning achievement. You know, and there's my kids and stuff, but it's like just a, a different right. thing. And I am, you know, if you ask me about my work, I'd be like, I am very proud of every book I have ever put out. My indie stuff is great. My traditional published stuff is great. I am proud of my work. (laughs) And at the same time, wholly insecure about it. (laughs) You know? Oh, you know, you reading something. Did you like it? Did the, 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 you know, I'm like asking my friends, did my jokes land? You know, were you bored? Like, that's the worst. Don't tell me you weren't bored. Um, no, I only fell asleep twice. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it's like... You know, and, well, that's good, though, Kim. That's good. <laughs> He's I mean, always sleeping. The, the, well, but the bottom line is, if you really are happy with it, that's, I think that's the important thing. If, you, if you're focused on the work, I think that was my point. If you focus on the work and not the noise that's around you with all this stuff, mm-hmm. um, then you do good because that's what you're doing. If you if It takes you off your game if you start... Going down rabbit holes, or oh, I got a one star, I got a two star. This person didn't like it because of this. And it's like, well, it kind of throws you, I think. In my opinion, it takes you totally out of the the framework of writing. I mean, I don't know. Maybe what kind of writer are you? Are you able to just write under any sort of circumstance, or do you have to be in a certain, let's say, mood? I am terribly, I, I would, I should, when I can, when I focus, I'm great. But I find it really hard to focus. Also, when I write, I'm like, ugh, this is terrible. And I'm one of those people like, this is terrible. And then I go back and read them like, this is great. Why did I think this was terrible? Um, you know, I just, I think in the moment. And you know, do you put yourself to like, you're out cleaning floors or you, you do other things intentionally to avoid, to avoid facing the writing? Oh, yeah, yes. I see, I think that's, yeah. that's quite normal. Yeah. yeah. I'm reading Atomic Habits right now. I'm hoping that book will put me in a different mindset. Have you heard of Atomic Habits? was really big oh really no but I, you know i don't read <laughs> i mean i normally don't read that <laughs> i lately i haven't been people are like oh you should be just not i'm like is that nonfiction? i'm not getting to it um but I, I just picked it up from the library 
And I was like, just hoping that I can change some of my bad habits, which is that I can lose focus really easily. I, you know, any interruption is just takes me off my game. What's actually helped a lot is just wearing headphones and listening to classic music while I write. That yeah, actually works. Yeah, I, think I can't yeah. sing to classic music. You know what I mean? It's not Taylor Swift. I can't hum along. So it, it just stays in the background and then I don't have to, you know, and keeping my phone away from me, of course, and all yeah. that stuff. So how about just, you're, you're a, uh, you seem very extroverted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, that would be leading to a lot of uh, social media that you would be involved with and all that. Is, do you do that? Does that help? Yeah. Uh, does, it, does it help? <laughs> I, I mean, Twitter makes me feel depressed. I'm like, oh, God, the world is crashing and burning and everything is awful. And um, It's Instagram, like being in a bad bar fight at Twitter. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm like, oh, my God, how is the world not crumbling around me? Um, but I, I'm a news junkie. I just want to know what's going on all the time. And, um, Instagram always makes me feel like I'm not doing enough. I'm like, oh, damn it. I should be, I should be, I'm like, I need a, I need a graphic. I need to tweet. I, you know, I need to do something. Um, I love TikTok. TikTok is, uh, I, I get that the people, you know, data and security and all that stuff, but I do not care because TikTok is the most entertaining social media platform that exists. Yeah, don't worry. They shot down the balloon, so it's okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, of course. And then the balloon, I'm like, I'm saying to my husband, I'm like, why? I mean, I would imagine they spy on us all the time. Why do they make it so obvious? Like, isn't it? Is, I'm like, why was it so conspicuous? <laughs> why, why do you need a balloon with satellites? I don't know. You know. I'm like, oh, but, you know, social media just gets away with me, away from me in terms of like, it, it's very disruptive. It, it is a time waster and it's one that I sort of welcome and I'm like, oh no, get off this. So, um, I really, I am an adult woman who has to school herself constantly on, you are going to work for an hour, put your headphones on and shut up about it. Like, you know, I have to really be harsh with myself because when I write, I feel amazing. Even if I write garbage or I think it's garbage at the time, when I am productive, I feel like my best self. I'm like, I'm invincible. I, I did, I did, you know, an hour's worth of work today. And I'm like, I can take on the world. You know, it's incredible. And then when I don't write, I feel terrible. But at the same time, it's like, you don't want to do it. It's work. I don't know. Art, producing art is just, we're like nuts to do. Well, I would stick with that. I wouldn't change that much. Because that it's that combination that makes it work, you know. I I can't imagine not writing. I just can't, and um, I hope to be in the kind of I hope to be lucky enough that I get to keep doing this. Like a publisher keeps saying, "We'd like another book." Like I hope to be in that. I mean, I've I've public I've done indie stuff, so I can always go back. If, if nobody's if there's no takers in life. I'm just going to do it myself because I can't not write and I do have stories to tell and I have things I want to say, you know, so it's, it's, you know, if I don't do it, it just, I think it would just eat me. So it's going to have to happen. You're just like Michael. (laughs) (laughs) He's got things he's got to say. Yeah. Always, always. If he can't do it, then, you know, he's a, he's a mess. It's it's, right. <laughs> it's like it just it pressure valve in you, you know, you know, writing is just releasing that pressure valve. I'm like, I have this great idea, you know, and I got to write it. So do you have a, a notebook with you all the time? So when you have a life experience, you go, I could have that in my book. No, I do. So I, I um, have 
notebooks, but I don't carry them with me. Like I have, um, you know, when notebooks go on sale for like a quarter each, like it's staples in the beginning of the school year, I buy like, yeah. you know, 20 notebooks. I just have blank notebooks everywhere. And every novel gets a notebook. And I just, like I scribble ideas and they just, you know, one idea leads to another. And I, I do a lot of like just scribbling down of notes for a while, but it'll live in my head. I'll be driving in the car. I'll, I'll like plot out something. You know, I'll go home, I'll write it, but I don't carry it with me because I carry a very small purse. <laughs> like, I'm not carrying a notebook with me. Okay. No, I wish I did. I do imagine them fully fleshed out people, though, like, that I could, like, run into. Um, you know, I visualize things kind of like a TV show. You know, I, I imagine scenes at a time. They're not always cohesive. So sometimes, like, that takes a while to plot because I'll just imagine, like, wouldn't this be a cool scene? And this would be a cool scene as if I was scripting a television show and then weaving them together is, is really where it gets tricky. Cause I don't like, you know, I will draft the first act loosely without a plot, like without an outline, but then I can't continue. I can't. So I write in four act structures and I can never get it. I can't do acts um, two and three without a plot outline ready to go. Cause then I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm working on. And then when I, don't know what the scene looks like. I can't draft. You kill off people, you know. <laughs> I have definitely. You know, it's funny. Um, I don't want to get like I'm working on another. I'm working on a book, and I gave a character a name, and then a family member started dating a person with that name, and I didn't change that. <laughs> I was like, too bad. That's who it is. Deal <laughs> with the consequences. So. <laughs> I have oh. done that though. I'm like, oh, so this person bothers me. Yeah, that's that's who the character is named after. Yeah. Well, I first I, one I, gets off. Yeah, and I've talked to writers that like you know uh, big writers uh, that say that they'll be um, in a supermarket and someone will butt in or do something really rude, and they take that character and and kill them off in the book. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. Like that's just yeah. that's that is our just yeah for sure. <laughs> Well, I think an advantage, I guess, in, in fiction, too, right? When you're writing a fiction crime, in a way, you get to choose the ending. You get to resolve and kind of give some sort of justice, right? Whereas in true crime and stuff, you can't always, it's, it is what it is. I always say true crime, like, I love true crime podcasts, but true crime is so boring when you think about it, right? A wife goes missing. In reality, who, who's responsible? The husband. It's almost always like the spouse is almost always the one who's, and it's, it's always the case. Like you can't do that in a book. It'd be so boring. Be like, Oh, that guy, you know? So, you know, true crime, we're so fascinated by the crimes itself because, you know, when it comes to true crime, like how somebody can do, kill, take a life like that is, is what I think, you know, draws us to it. But when writing fiction, I mean, for me, uh, making the puzzle, the who done it part is where I have so much fun. It's like, you know, playing with my audience too. Like I can't make it the most obvious person. That wouldn't be fun. You know, you know, red herrings are exciting, you know, like um, throwing those all in. I don't like fish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like herring. Yeah. So Kim, I write, you know, I both do true crime, nonfiction. <laughs> I also do fiction. Mm -hmm. And I know what you mean when I, I love the fiction because I get sucked into that world that I just created. 
one of the, the thing I love about true crime is if I discover something that nobody else knows yet, and I'm going to introduce the world to it. So it's, it's the, the, the discovery is, gives gives me some euphoric feeling. So it's kind of like a different animal. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love like true crime. It just you know, like I I could I spend hours driving and I'm like you know, listening to murder podcasts about, you know, real murders, like things that are not funny and I cannot joke about. Um, but, you know, because it's, it's how it unravels and how they capture people and things like that. And But, yeah, I, yeah. I enjoy the puzzle aspect. Like, create, like when, I, when I plot something and I'm like, oh, my God, I have this genius idea, and then, like, where I could stitch it all together, I mean, it, that's my euphoria, but for sure. I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's something about it. Plus, like I said, there's there there will be justice in in. I think a lot of people in the real world, they don't feel there's a lot of justice. Like there, it doesn't always end the way it's supposed to, and the right people aren't always, you know, either out in a year or two years or so. It just it, there seems to be this real failing in the justice system. But sure. with a crime fiction, your your person that did it is going to get it. Yes. Right, so there's there's justice, there's a resolve. Yeah, there's satisfaction for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's a big difference too, right? Whereas, um, you know, you can read a, a lot of crime books, true crime books, and there's no real resolve, and or sometimes it's real irritating or frustrating at the end when you find out that the killer got away or the killer only had to do four years in jail or something, and you yep. know, you hear all these things and you feel oh, it doesn't feel the same. In fiction, you could have them electrocuted or get shot or put away you know there's oh, definitely justice for sure um and and that's that's important to me as a writer because i want not a tidy ending you know although oh. i'm prob probably guilty of making tidy endings but i like to see justice done I, especially in hard-boiled fiction i feel like justice should be done um so I, I do personally enjoy that as a writer and a reader. One of the things is, like, I am drawn to true crime, but I do get frustrated. I'm like, they didn't capture this person? Like, this is a yeah. serial killer? They didn't get him? Like, you get, like, ugh. Well, yeah. <laughs> you get so annoyed. You're like, eh. Well, I think, well, I think too, we're, we're, we're sort of um, led into a false sense of, of hope or belief from shows like CSI and all this, that mm -hmm. everything gets solved. And it's really not that way. Or, or the, you know, the profilers and stuff who really don't catch anybody. Sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's just, right. it's always accidental when people do get killed or they've done something, you know, they left a parked in the wrong place and got a ticket and they got tied to a crime and it all comes together, but it's not like some FBI profiler somewhere that's caught them. That all sounds great on these shows, but it's not not real life. So, yeah, that's it's crazy. But I think that's why I watch I watch shows like that and I read books like that. I know I, there is there is that fantastical element that I am there for. You know, you're not going to be left frustrated going, "Oh, goddamn person should have gone." <laughs> right. I'm reading it to get maybe from the fiction what I can't get from real life. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think that's that's a true thing. That I, I find, but so do you, do, do you have all your social media set up? Where do people find you? Where do, where do people find Kim? Well, um, my, uh, my website is Kimberly G .com, So my author name, and you can find me at Twitter at KG Geratano at 
Instagram at Kim Garnick Geritano. That's my whole name. Um, so if somebody's listening to this from high school, they'll be like, wait, I know that girl. Facebook, KG Geritano author. I mean, if you Google my name, I'm the, I, you know, author, I'm really the first listing that should pop up. And if you Google death of a dancing queen, you will find me that way too. Cause it's a pretty unique title. So uh, if you just, if you don't put it in quotes, so you will get ABBA references. Yeah. Just oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know what? Um, we'll have all that up on our website. So people will be able to find you one click, you Thank know, you. cause it's, you know, even though it's a real common name, it's, you know, <laughs> and so, um, and of course your book will be up as well and stuff like that. So it's all yeah. done. Now, how was COVID? Writing over COVID. I was very bad about writing over COVID because I had my kids home for quite a bit. So actually what happened was this book was drafted in 2019 for the most part. I finished it in April of 2020. It was like, oh, no. <laughs> Are people, I'm like, can I query it? Because it was April of 2020. So I'm like, can I query it? And I was, like, asking other authors. And they're like, it's all right. Go ahead. People are still working. So I got my agent, I want to say May or May. And I love her to death. So that was, like, a good thing. And But it did take a while to sell this. And I'll, um, uh, believe it or not, I got uh, responses from publishers that were female-led private eye fiction is, like, not a hot market. Oh. Huh. I thought female-led would be the hot market. Yeah. Not for private eye. Oh, okay. So male-led private eye, I think because it appeals to men, is fine. But female, like, I, I would hear from publishers that, like, you know, cozies, female-led, great. Amateur sleuths, great. Psy- like, psychological suspense, great. But this weird in-between of hard-boiled, female-led, hard-boiled, not great. And I'm like, how is that possible? Sue Grafton? Uh, Sarah Paretsky, Janet Ivanovich, like these are big giant authors. Um, like, wh- how is this a thing? And they'd be like, well, you know, we need more recent comp titles and we don't, you know, there isn't any. And I was like so depressed. But, um, Detora Books, by the way, and I want to plug this because they are amazing. Detora Books is the new crime fiction imprint from Angry Robot. Angry Robot puts out award-winning um, science fiction and fantasy novels. And this is their new crime fiction imprint, and I'm the first title to come out of it. Um, yeah. Eleanor Teasdale, who is the publisher at Angry Robot and Detora, read my book in a week and was like, this is who we want to lead our crime fiction imprint. And I love this woman. She lives in England. They're across the pond. They're amazing. Um, and I love her and I have never been more grateful for the experience because I, I, you know, I really love Billy, my character, and she is resonating with readers and readers are saying we want to see more of it. And I'd like to think that we could have a new generation of, you know, Kinsey Milhones, you know, and Stephanie Plums. And so I'm hoping that's what we're going to see now today too. Nice. Well, I'm sure you will. So anyway, we appreciate you being on the show. Of course, I appreciate being here. Thank you. Of course, the book we're talking about is Death of a Dancing Queen. And no, that's not Michael. And <laughs> the author's been our guest, Kimberly G. Geritano. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, everyone. And it's, it's out on Valentine's Day, so it would make a great Valentine's Day gift for a reader. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, 
posts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.